listening to the sermon podcast from Real Life Pullman Campus, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Word on the street has it that for those of you here last week, you had to look at Corbin's underwear. I just want you to know up front, I will not be trying to outdo that. I'm just going to let him have that one and run with that. I would say as far as he wants to, but I'm not sure I want to say that. So we are in our Advent series. How's everybody doing with our Advent series? All right, good. We're in week two. So Advent is this season that we use every year, hopefully God uses every year, to prepare us. Advent means arrival. It's a season of preparation. The Christ child is coming. Or never mind, Game of Thrones joke about came out. That would have been bad. Um, winter is coming. There it is. It came out anyway. Here, here's this Advent season, and the Christ child is on his way, and especially in our world, all these competing narratives, all the consumerism and the necessary holiday stuff or unnecessary holiday stuff or whatever you want to do with that, these competing narratives, and in the midst of that, Jesus, the reason for the season, That's difficult, and so Advent is designed to prepare us for that. Four weeks every single year, uh, hope, and then peace, and then joy, and then love, and then we have these candles around a wreath sometimes, and we light all those, ending with the white candle in the middle for the Christ child. It's It's a season designed to prepare us, and so last week we talked about hope, and the hope that we find in God's promises, and his premises, and all those things, and then this week we want to look at uh, the, the week of peace. He, the, the Jewish mind would say shalom, say shalom, shalom, shalom mean, meaning wholeness, everything in its proper place. It's far greater than the absence of conflict. It's this everything in its proper place, shalom, peace. So uh, I just want to dive in and read the, read the story up front so that we can always kind of use it throughout our morning this morning to reference back to the Christmas story. So you guys with me? You ready? Fantastic. Here we go. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Yosef went up from the town of Nazareth in the Galil to Judea to Beit Lechem. Say Beit Lechem, house of bread, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in claws and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. Listen to this. I bring you good news. I bring you euangelion in the Greek. Say euangelion. I bring you euangelion that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Mashiach, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. He will, you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared to the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. So there's that Christmas narrative for us this morning. We've been using a metaphor. If Advent is designed to prepare us for the coming of the Christ child, if the story of Christmas is the story of the presence of God coming amongst us, then then somebody, not me, somebody had a brilliant idea this year of why not use the same teaching metaphor that God used with his people to teach about the presence of God. And so we've been using the temple as kind of this four-part grid to lead us through our Advent study, and it works out really, really well. I was kind of surprised. When I first heard about it on Slack, which is a communication channel we use, I was like, what? And then as I looked at it, I went, oh. So it's pretty fun to be able to preach this today. But we have this, this here, here's this diagram of the temple. This would be true of the tabernacle. The tabernacle would be the actual plans that God laid out, and then it, over the course of, uh, of history kind of evolves, and eventually you have the second temple, which is then remodeled by Herod the Great. So you have the second temple period, and you have this newly remodeled temple. We'll show you pictures in just a moment, but that's the, the temple that Herod built. But you have this, this grid here, this diagram, and what we did is, there's going to be four parts of this. Last week, we spent our time over here in, the, in the, the, this courtyard, and any Jew that was fit for the assembly, men or women, Gentiles couldn't come in here. Gentiles had to be out beyond the wall. There was a wall that was about yay high, so it wasn't like actually designed to like, you know, it, it's just designed to be a marker, a barrier. Like Gentiles could come this far. But any, and there could be Jews that could be ceremonially unclean or for any reason they could be unfit for the assembly of the Lord and they have to stay outside that wall. But any Jew that's fit for the assembly of the Lord can come into this courtyard. And this courtyard is actually, in fact, Let's actually, this is going to be all out of order. Sorry, PowerPoint people back there. Can we jump ahead to two slides? Yes, perfect. So here's this uh, illustration. This is a model. Looks real, but it's just a model of, of uh, that's supposed to be funnier than it was, um, of the courtyard. And you can notice these different rooms there. You would have had your large boxes where you could have brought your tithes and your gifts and your offerings. Uh, rabbis could sit here. This is a place where teaching could, pa- in fact, Jesus sat here with his disciples and taught about the widow's mite, the, the widow's offering. She comes and she gives these two little tiny coins as her offering, and Jesus is in the temple court with his disciples teaching here. And so this is where you could learn. This is where you could hear the stories of the prophets. This is where you could be told all about who God is. You could learn all about who God is. And you could do that all in this area. And so learning about who God is, hearing the stories, hearing the prophecies, this is why we use this area to talk about hope. Because in this place, hearing the prophecies, hearing the message, hearing the pronouncement, that's where hope comes from. That's where the seeds of hope get sown. The problem is, is it's too easy just to hang out in the courtyard. The temple's not made to hang out in the courtyard. Does that make sense? What's the other uh, fun little bumper sticker? Boats are safe in the harbor, but that's not what a boat was made for. (laughs) Yeah, the temple, the temple's not made for the courtyard. Like the courtyard is where it all begins, but the temple is not about the courtyard. The temple is about the presence of God. And so let's go back one slide. If we want to go to the next level, we're going to talk about the altar today. 
So now let's go back to that same picture we were looking at. You're going to sit in this courtyard. You can hang out here all day long, but if you want to actually go through the process, you're going to have to go through those doors. Now, this metaphor that God gave, it's a teaching tool. The temple was a teaching tool. And we, a lot of times we misunderstand it or abuse it and misuse the teaching tool because only certain people were allowed, for, the further and further you get into towards the presence of God, the fewer and fewer people are allowed. And so sometimes, especially in our world, you get this sense like, oh, God's not accessible to everyone. Like only men and boys could go through those doors to the altar. Only males could, and so there's like this thing like, oh, please understand me, this is 3,500 years old. This is God speaking into a cultural norm using cultural language and cultural metaphors that they're used to to make a larger teaching point. To grab it and then force it into our world 4,000 years later may not be the wisest decision. Does that make sense? This isn't about who God is accessible to. This is about God teaching his people what the process looks like if you want to come to, a Jew will say, this whole temple business is about cleaving to the Lord. It's about teaching me how to cleave to God. As a, as a wife cleaves to her husband, so I am called to cleave to God. And the tabernacle and the temple was designed to teach me, not keep other people out. That's how religious people started using it. And Jesus was pretty upset about that. I don't know if you read your gospels. He's pretty upset about the people that use it to keep people out. That's not what it was about. It was about teaching people about how to come. It was about teaching people how to approach. And if you want to cleave to God, that's not going to be easy. And so on the other side of these doors, next picture, sits the altar. And the altar on just the other side of that you can see there. The altar becomes the place of confession. And that's an important part for our peace week of Advent. As we talk about peace and shalom, the very next step in this process is to get to the altar and take part in confession. This process becomes really important. Like what does it mean to cleave to God this Advent? This process is important because this step can't be avoided. Now there's two different, predominantly, two different problems when we come to the altar. Not to simplify it or bifurcate it or say there's not a whole bunch of complicated nuance, but there are generally two different approaches to the altar. Some of us in the room are like, I would rather not come to the altar, thank you very much. I would rather not deal with confession. I would rather not deal with my sinfulness. I'm full of shame, like there's all kinds of reasons why I would rather not come to the altar. I think I'll just hang out in the courtyard. I think I'll just show up at church. I think I'll just learn about God. I'll get all my theology like kind of straightened out. I would rather just know thank you. Maybe some of you are like that. Then there's another group of us that's like, presence of God, let's go. And we're just gonna stroll on in there. Like where's the door? Let me just go rock right on up there and knock on the door. If that's your approach to the presence of God, I don't think we're talking about the same thing. Does that make sense? Like one of the things that the temple is supposed to teach us is that the presence of God, they use words to talk about God's presence. One of the words in Hebrew is kavod. Say kavod. The word means wait. Like what? Like what? The presence of God is like wait. It is when you come into the presence of God, it like drives you. It is weighty. It's thick. It's significant, kavod, the weight of God's presence. Like if you're just like, hey, here we come, 
I don't think that word means what you think it means. Does that make sense? The temple system is designed to talk to both groups. For those groups that are like, ah, I think I'll just stay out in the courtyard, the temple system says, no, come this way. And for those that are like, hey, let's go, the temple system says, stop and check yourself. Okay, so let's actually look at a passage from 1 John. I want to look at this because this helps us on the one. Let's talk about group two, the group that just wants to come strolling on into the presence of God. This is a message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we, do lie, we lie and do not live out the truth. John says, listen, one metaphor we could use for God is he's light. There is no darkness in God. And so if we claim to walk in this fellowship of light, and yet we've got all these dark corners in our life, we're kidding ourselves. We're lying. We're not walking in truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from, let's leave this slide right here. It purifies us from all sin. So if I'm willing to come to God and walk in the light, which means I bring all my stuff with me, it's all in the light. An honest assessment of what I bring to the table. Because John says, if you don't think you have any darkness, you're a fool. You lie. But if you walk in the light and bring in all, all that stuff, all the baggage, all that stuff with you, John says, God forgives us. The blood of his son purifies us from all sin. He repeats himself. Watch this. Next, next slide. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, didn't he just say that? Yes, he's repeating himself. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. There is a point as you approach the presence of God, there is a part of that process, and we're not trying to make it linear, like it's step one, step two, step three, step... But this process of coming towards God, in this process, you bump into the need to bring all your stuff with you to the altar. We call it confession. Confession is a part of that process of preparing ourselves to see the Christ child this Advent season. Confession. But then there's another group of us. And that is we come to the altar, we're like, yeah, 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 I'm not gonna stroll in. I, I'm probably not even gonna get to the Holy of Holies, but I know I have to come to the altar. And so I come to the altar, and the posture with which we come to the altar is incredibly telling. We come to the altar with our sacrifice and our head down and full of shame, and we just come to the altar because we know that something, and I think we miss the point of the altar. The altar is not a place of judgment. The altar is a place of forgiveness. Uh, I came back from my last trip. I was in Missoula preaching at our church plant over there. Doing well, by the way. They, said, they all say hi. I don't know if they did, but I'm saying hi for them. <laughs> and uh, I got back from Missoula, and my family has been watching this. Apparently, everybody's watching this. This British baking show. Yeah, okay, okay. You guys are all trying. Good, this, this illustration's gonna work then. So my family's been watching this British baking show. I've been catching bits and pieces of it. But while I was gone, they went from season one to season two. So we're way behind, okay? But well, they went from season one to season two, 
And I got back and my wife and my kids are both like, dad, there's this girl on season two, her name is Ruby. And she can't even look at the judges. Like whenever she has to bring her stuff to the table, she just sits there with her head staring down. And when they say something good, she's like, I can't believe it. And when they say something bad, it's, I know. My wife and my children pick up on the posture. And far too many of us come to the altar with our chin in our belly button full of shame with our face downcast. Seems like God talked to somebody about a downcast face. His name was Cain. God's like, why are you doing that? Cain's like, well, I, bought, I brought a bad offering to the altar. And God's like, so? Okay. So bring a better one next time. The altar is a place of forgiveness. And God looks at Cain and says, why, are you, why is your face all like, mm? What in your mind, when you come to the altar, what is God's what is God's posture like on the other side of the altar? Because I think we have been taught in Christianity, we start our story with the sinful depravity of mankind and how dare we think we could ever have fellowship with God. And what it's done to us is when we think of the altar, we picture God on the other side of the altar with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face and he says, tell me what you've done. And for some of us, this has been reinforced with really bad theology. For some of us, it's been reinforced by really bad parents. By some of us, it's been reinforced by all kinds of things. But there's just posture. Let me tell you something. God at the altar is not the British baking show. God does not sit on the other side of the altar with his arms crossed like a scolding parent, just ready to just give you a throttling saying, you better come clean about all the stuff you bring here. God sits on the other side of the altar with his arms open saying, I'm so glad you've come. The altar is not a place that all this legal transaction has to be dealt with before we can move on to the next step. The altar is a place where we have to be honest about what we bring to the process. Because if you think we're just gonna stroll in there without being honest about what we bring to the table, it's never gonna happen. God just wants an honest assessment of what I bring. And he can't wait to go, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Let's talk about it and leave it here and keep going. That's what forgiveness, the altar is not a place of judgment. It is a place of forgiveness. And that's why confession is something that we can look at with our head up free of shame, because the altar's about freedom, not condemnation. That's the whole reason the altar is there. Let, let's look at this Psalm, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's leave that right there for just a moment in whose spirit there is no deceit. What's being said here? Blessed is the man who walks, it's First John. Blessed is the man who walks in the light. There's no deceit in him. He's not a liar to himself or anybody or God or anybody around him. 
He comes with an open and honest assessment of who he is and what he brings to the altar, and God forgives him. Blessed is that man, the psalmist says. Let's keep going. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When I stood out in the courtyard, I didn't find life out there. It's not what the temple's for. Life didn't fill my bones out in the courtyard just listening to the teaching of the rabbis. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I was just honest. I walked in the light. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, I let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. And the psalm goes on, and for the sake of brevity this morning, you can read the rest of that psalm. It's in your notes. But let us come. Let us pray while God may be found. Let us come to the altar. Let us confess with our head up. And I I feel always like a broken record, but I know how many of us struggle with this, so here I'm going to say it again. I know how many of us come and we listen to a message like this, we read a passage like this, we go through Advents like these, and, and we hear this stuff and we think it's fantastic, but there's this other voice in our head that says, it's just not for me. Like, this is so good, and it's amen, God's goodness for everyone else, God's forgiveness for everyone else, but just not God's forgiveness for me because of what I bring to the altar, because of how many times I've let him down, because of whatever shame that I'm carrying with me, just not for me. For for Tyler, yes. For Thad, yes. But not for me. Not for me. What's interesting is what the rabbis connected this passage to. Uh, ooh, another hurdle for our PowerPoint, guys. Can you go back to the first slide of Psalm 32? This is fun. Oh, man, you guys are so on it back there. Good work. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin are covered. One more slide. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The rabbis, as rabbis always did, had all these conversations filled with questions about all the things they would study. And when they got to Psalm 32 and they studied Psalm 32, they asked a question. They said, is it true that if there's no deceit in a man, he's blessed? Not a trick question. Answer is, yes. If there's no deceit in me, I'm in a blessed state. That's a good thing, correct? To have no deceit in me is a good thing, right? You guys awake out there? Not a trick question. I warned you, it's not a trick question. The next one might be, but the first one's not. So then the rabbi said, second question. Is it true that if a man is blessed, there's no deceit in him? So it's true that if there's no deceit in a man, he's blessed. Is it also true that if a man is blessed, there's no deceit in him? And the rabbi said, no. And their immediate example was, who do you think? Guy by the name of Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob? There's not a story of a guy who's full of more deceit, and yet every single time you turn the page, God's doing what? Blessing him. And they said, this goodness of God to cover our transgressions walks out in front of us. Like God is so anxious to get us to his presence, 
to teach us how to cleave to us. This isn't a laundry list of things that we have to get figured out before God will finally turn around and listen to us. God is at the altar shouting our name through the doorway as we stand in the courtyard. Hey, Thad, when you coming in here? Well, I don't know, I'm not really ready. Yeah, you are. This is who our God is, standing on the other side of the altar going, come on, because I see all the luggage that you're carrying around and it has to be exhausting. So why don't we come this Advent with all these like premonitions that there's gonna be a Christ child showing up and how about this week in an effort to find our wholeness, our peace, our Advent shalom? What was it that the angels said? Do not be afraid, the angel said, for I bring you good news. A euangelion means gospel. I bring you a gospel of great joy for all people. Interesting thing about that Greek word all, when you translate it, it means all. (laughs) That would include you. And that would include me. Advent, the Advent pronouncement is a pronouncement of great joy for all people. It's not an, a, an announcement of judgment. It's not an announcement of condemnation. It's an announcement that there is a Christ child being born and he's for you and you and you and all the people that you know and the people that are ready for him and the people that aren't ready for him and the people that are gonna miss him and the people that are gonna see him and the people that are gonna bring him gifts and the people that are gonna be a pum 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 and all the people you could ever imagine that are gonna show up for Advent or not show up for Advent, this Christ child is born for them. That's good news. Glory to God in the highest heaven. You know what's so interesting about that in our temple metaphor? That song that the angels sing, glory to God in the highest heaven, peace to men on whom his favor rests. That was a hymn that was sung during Sukkot in the temple. It was, we found it in our archaeological work. We have found that as a temple liturgy during the festival of Sukkot. That's what the priests are singing in the temple as they go about their works. Glory to God in the highest heaven. And this temple shows up in the middle of a field somewhere in Bethlehem. And the angels say, let me bring you the temple worship to your doorstep. Those of you who could never, those shepherds are not clean enough to step over that wall in the temple. And so God says, let me bring the temple to you. That's what Advent is going to do this Christmas. You have to to be ready to have this open, honest assessment. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna work through some implications this morning as we get ready for the Lord's table. So I'm gonna ask our servers if they will uh, head back there and get ready to serve us the elements. If you are visiting with us, we have an open table for communion. What that means is that if you wanna celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us, you are family and you join us. Just hold on to the bread, hold on to the juice, and we'll take it all together here in just a moment. As they hand that out, I want to work through some implications here this morning. I like these ones, mainly because I wrote them, but. (laughs) First implication. It's one thing to learn about the love, acceptance, character, and nature of God. That's one thing, and it's an important thing, and we all should do it, amen? We should learn about that. We should hang out in the courtyard. We should take in podcasts. We should, I even know of a good one. You can come ask me about it. Um, You can... We, we ought to learn about who this God is. But we also ought to do more than that. 
It's one thing to learn about the love, acceptance, character, and nature of God. It's another thing to step further into the process of letting that same God speak into your humanity. It's one thing to learn about the love, acceptance, character, and nature of God. It's another thing to step further into the process of letting that same God speak into your humanity. What are your fears? What are your insecurities? What are your, what's the sin that has come out of those fears and insecurities? What is the brokenness? What are your addictions? What are the hangups? What are, what are all the dark places in your life? To let God show up this Advent and start to say, I know, it's not a secret to me. And there's a whole lot of that that you can just leave here at the bottom of the altar. That, that's, a, that's something entirely different than just learning about who God is. To experience who God is through the practice of confession. Next implication. We confess our sinfulness because it cannot be ignored. We confess because it sets our hearts right. This, this week is about shalom. It's peace. Advent, peace. Second week of Advent. It's about shalom. Here's the problem. None of us have shalom. None of us have perfect, beautiful wholeness. We all have chunks that we're missing and stuff that's all crooked that should be made straight. And all, we have all kinds of stuff. Confession is one of the only ways that any of that can get acknowledged and the power of God can go to work filling in all the empty places, all the broken cracks in our vessel. All of that stuff can be dealt with, but only if we'll have an honest assessment of where all the stuff is missing. That's why we confess. It's counterintuitive, but we confess because it's the only thing that makes things right. It's the only way to really find shalom in the first place, is to acknowledge the fact we don't have it. And God says, ah, let me give it to you. Third implication. In confession at the altar, we find that God is ready to accept an honest assessment of who we are in this moment. Look at this passage from Isaiah. By the way, this passage comes in the middle of a brutal chapter in Isaiah. Isaiah 1 is full of like, I hate your festivals, quit coming to church, quit bringing me your meaningless offerings, you're, you're all pathetic, I can't stand your worship. And then in the midst of all of that, God says this. Don't believe me, go read it. At one point, God says, it makes me want to vomit. Like God's not like, oh yeah, you got some things wrong. No, God's like, you guys are a wreck. And then this, come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. He has just spent a chapter saying, you guys have the most disgusting worship I have ever seen. Your disobedience is astounding. But if you will come to the altar with an honest assessment of where you're at, we can start all over. So tell me again that this isn't for you. Anyway, last implication. It's God's acceptance and forgiveness that gives us peace this Advent season. It's the fact that God sits on the other side of the altar saying, I'm so glad you're here. That allows us to go out of here made new again. We have in our hands bread and juice that resembles so much of everything that we're talking about. It's a place of confession. 
It's a place of God reminding us where he stands with us. He gave us this every single week. I wonder why that we would observe this and eat this, this meal every single week. I wonder if it's because God knows that every single week we need to come and just be reminded that in the midst of all the things that we lack, he's here to make us whole. I wonder if God sits on the other side of the Lord's table every single week and says, I'm so glad you're here. So let's observe this this morning. On that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a piece of bread. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. This is my body. And whenever you do this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus this morning. During that same meal, he took a cup. He passed it amongst his disciples. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood of the covenant. Whenever you drink this, remember me. Let's remember Jesus today. Father God, we ask you to prepare our hearts. This is a season where we long to prepare ourselves for the coming of the Christ child. We want to uh, observe this season of preparation for the arrival, Advent. God, we, there are, I think Tom said it this morning, we bring so much with us through the doorways. Every single time we come through these doorways to worship, we bring so much with us. Would you allow us to leave here without all the baggage we brought in? That we could leave it all here with an empty communion cup and, and, and leave here having been made new, having experienced confession, going with a sense of shalom, a sense of peace, the voice of the angels ringing in the back of our head, glory to God in the highest, peace to men on whom his favor rests, glad tidings to all people. Would you like send us like the shepherds with glad tidings to all people, having experienced the altar, having experienced confession, would you send us out like the shepherds that others could be amazed to hear about a God who just sits at an altar ready to love and accept and forgive? God, we love you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life on the Palouse. You can find out more about us by visiting us online at liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Also, if you enjoyed this message, make sure you check out the new podcast from our lead pastor, Aaron Couch, called A Better Conversation. Search for it on our website, iTunes, and the Google Play Store.